From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law. What does a prosecutor have to prove in order to get a RICO conviction? Tell us why the Solicitor General is sometimes referred to as the 10th Justice. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. That's Jennifer Kay for Bloomberg Law. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is the toughest hurdle for prosecutors proving Trump's intent? Alito took on Congress, saying Congress has no power to regulate the Supreme Court. Bloomberg. Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, Donald Trump is hit with a $364 million fine. His first criminal trial date is set for next month in Manhattan, but he asked the Supreme Court to put his D.C. criminal trial on hold. And the House impeaches the Homeland Security Secretary on the second try. It's a ridiculous award. Listen, a fine of $355 million for doing a perfect job. It hasn't been a good week for Donald Trump. Not only did a New York judge schedule the date for his first criminal trial, but another New York judge handed down a verdict finding the former president and his real estate company $364 million in penalties plus interest and barring him from running any business in the state for three years. Following a two-and-a-half-month trial, Judge Arthur and Goron found that Trump and his companies engaged in a decades-long scheme of inflating asset values on annual financial documents in order to dupe banks and other lenders into giving him better terms on hundreds of millions of dollars in loans. And it's all having to do with election interference. There were no victims because the banks made a lot of money. They made $100 million. And by the way, I paid approximately $300 million in taxes. It was a victory for New York Attorney General Letitia James, who sued Trump after a three-year investigation. Because the scale and the scope of Donald Trump's fraud is staggering. And so, too, is his ego and his belief that the rules do not apply to him. Today, we are holding Donald Trump accountable. But the verdict does keep the Trump organization in business. The judge backed away from an earlier ruling that would have dissolved the former president's companies. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who was in the courtroom for the trial. Patty, of course, it's a lot of money, but Trump has testified he has $400 million in cash and he has a net worth of $3.1 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Some people I've spoken to have said, what would hurt Donald Trump the most? would be in his pocketbook. And I think that's one of the reasons the attorney general went after the case this way, saying this is illegal profits made by lying to banks and insurers. And they put on a case for three months of long days proffering 
evidence of kind of cooking the bank books and modifications that made things seem like, oh, we really have this much money and we think it's worth this. There were phantom mansions and certain developments, you know, in, in Briarcliff that he claimed there were 35 mansions and there weren't any mansions and they were never built. It could have been worse, though, right? You could have had the corporate death penalty where a company is forced to dissolve. And the judge had initially ordered that, and then it was stayed by a Manhattan appellate court in October, literally a week after the judge ordered it. People call that the corporate death penalty because the company would have to be immediately dissolved, and the Trump organization is like an umbrella which has hundreds of LLCs under it. So how would it happen and how it would be dissolved? And, you know, does it mean that the lights at Trump Tower would have to be going off or there'd be a fire sale to sell 40 Wall Street? What the judge seemed to do is backtrack from that and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. But we did hear how there was no certified public accountant working at the Trump organization until after the lawsuit got filed. So the judge is now, in addition to the outside monitor, which is Barbara Jones, a former federal judge from Manhattan, who's already been the outside monitor that was appointed in 2022 by the judge. In addition to that, he added another monitor to work inside the company to oversee it. And he said because of that, there's no need now to vacate and liquidate the licenses. He's going to have that person keep an eye on the company and could revisit it later in the future. What does it mean for Donald Trump, do you think, that he can't do business in New York for three years and his sons can't do business for two years? Well, it was going to be for life. So it's only three years now. And some people have said, well, he might be running for president. He might be a little busy and the kids will do it anyway. But now it's Don Jr., Eric Trump, who was running the company for his dad in his stead when he was president, and Donald Trump. They're all barred for years. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens at this company, which is really an essentially almost like a little family company running this big, giant real estate empire. The judge said the Trump's complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. That's a stunning statement in a judge's opinion. Well, I mean, the judge did see Donald Trump up close and personal, where the former president harangued him and remonstrated him and made all these statements that sounded like they came out of a parallel universe and also asserted that he had a right to do what he wanted to do because it was his company. And, you know, there are rules that we all follow. And there is Sarbanes-Oxley and there are you know restrictions that people don't shade the truth. And he felt that there was a continuation of the parties from his previous order and, in fact, had cited recently that Barbara Jones had found some irregularities, even in the interim time period during the pendency of this trial. Trump is appealing the E. Jean Carroll defamation verdict of $83 million, and he says he's going to appeal this. And if he decides to put the money in escrow in lieu of a bond, it could amount to as much as 110 percent of the judgment. Well, he did boast during the trial that he had $400 million lying around. So he has told the court that. Some people I've spoken to have suggested that because he's Trump, he may want to get a bond to cover the $83.3 million as he appeals that. Now it's a huge chunk of change. And, you know, being Donald Trump, I'm sure he has got lots of friends and banks still, although it may be increasingly more difficult for him to find people so willing to open up their checkbooks and help him. Would you say this is the biggest 
victory that Letitia James has had since she's been attorney general? Yeah, it's a huge victory. And if you think of the animosity, I mean, having witnessed it in court, when Donald Trump would leave the defense table, he'd waltz past her, stop and glare at her, and then go outside the courtroom, three feet outside the main entrance of the courtroom doors, and start lambasting her and say extremely critical things and accuse her of being a con artist and insisting that she was wasting time. She should be investigating real criminals like the migrants that are committing crimes. And that's not her job. That could be the DA's job, but it's not the New York Attorney General's job. It's a huge victory for her. Some people say it's like David versus Goliath and the state shouldn't go there. And why are they taking on Trump? And, you know, he's argued that she has animus against him and she's just out to get him because she's a Democrat and he's a Republican. She's saying people who were insurers and the people who didn't get these loans, it has to be a level playing ground. And it wasn't. It was Trump cheating, according to her and her lawyers. Thanks so much, Patty. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Donald Trump had something else to complain about this week. After months of his attorney's legal wrangling and trying to get delays in his criminal trials, a judge in Manhattan put his foot down and scheduled the hush money payments trial for March 25th. Trump complained about Judge Juan Mershon's decision outside the courthouse on Thursday. I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think it's ridiculous. It's unfair. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter and English. Trump's lawyers, they raised every argument I think you could imagine. And they said that despite the fact that the D.C. trial has been put on hold, they said we had to focus 100 percent of our attention on preparing for that trial. And the judge basically said, too bad. He said, you willingly chose those two cases to represent Trump in. I told you March 25th was a date certain. You proceeded at your own peril. So what ends up happening is that judges have to navigate the other cases in terms of scheduling their trials. There's no set rules and there is no set procedure to determine which case goes to trial first. And so what the judges here have done is they have tried to be respectful of the other proceedings and tried to not get in the way of other trials that were set to go first. And that's why we saw the case in the District of Columbia set to go in early March and the Manhattan DA's case the case that is now going to trial at the end of March was going to be delayed because of the case in the District of Columbia involving the January 6th insurrection. But now that that case is put off, the case in Manhattan is going first. And this judge has said from the beginning that you have to be ready to go in March if we go first. Now, the Trump defense team has raised a litany of issues as to why the Manhattan DA's case should be delayed. One of them, as you mentioned, is that they have been preparing for the case in Washington, but the judge in Manhattan really had no patience with that argument. They also raised a number of other arguments saying that would interfere with the campaign season. That was something that was not successful. The Trump defense team also tried to delay the trial by tying it to the recent verdict in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. There was a large verdict, lots of publicity, and the Trump lawyers were saying that that will taint the jury pool. Again, the judge thought that could be dealt with during jury selection. Frankly, you're never going to find a jury in Manhattan that doesn't have strong opinions about former President Trump. And, Bob, this is the case that's going first. This is also the case that most legal analysts and others consider the weakest of the criminal cases against Donald Trump. One of the issues 
that has been dogging this case from the outset was the way in which the Manhattan DA charged it. This is basically a charge for falsifying business records. And in this case, what it means is that back in October of 2016, the allegation is that former President Trump, through Michael Cohn, his former attorney, was paying off Stormy Daniels, a porn star who alleged that she had an affair with former President Trump. So there was a payment made to Stormy Daniels through Michael Cohn that was later concealed as a legal payment. Ultimately, that created, according to the Manhattan DA, a false business record. Now, typically, business record violations in New York State are misdemeanors, which means they're punishable only by up to a year in prison, and they're relatively minor charges. But what the DA did here is he turned those into felonies, which you can do if the business record violation is somehow tied to another crime, or in this case, the concealment of another crime. Now, the real issue here is that the concealment of the other crime was a federal campaign law violation. And that theory, tying the business records violation to a federal rather than a state law violation, has never been tested in the appeals court. So although that issue was argued before the trial judge in Manhattan and the judge rejected it, I think we can see that issue raised again on appeal. And if there's going to be a real problem with this case, it's not likely to be in the evidence that's presented at trial. It's likely to be in this legal theory. First comes the trial, though, on March 25th. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter & English. Coming up, Trump wants the Supreme Court to put his D.C. criminal trial on hold. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. On immunity, very simple. If a president of the United States does not have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective because he won't be able to do anything because it will mean he'll be prosecuted, strongly prosecuted perhaps, uh, as soon as he leaves office by, his, by the opposing party. Donald Trump has been arguing in and out of court that he has absolute presidential immunity from criminal charges that he plotted to overturn the 2020 election. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals categorically rejected that argument in a unanimous opinion, but Trump is now asking the Supreme Court to intervene. On Monday, Trump asked the justices to put that D.C. opinion on hold while he appeals it, which will continue to delay his federal trial for election interference. My guest is Dave Ehrenberg, Palm Beach County State Attorney. Dave, what was your general impression of Trump's application to the Supreme Court for a stay? I thought the application for a stay was pretty weak. For example, he cited as a reason for the Supreme Court to grant a stay that his own 
supporters' First Amendment rights would be taken away. And that doesn't make any sense. First off, Trump is the defendant, not his supporters. And although he likes to nationalize everything where he makes any attack on him an attack on the country, it may play in the court of public opinion in the far right wing media, but not in a court of law. So you cannot go to the Supreme Court and say, I have irreparable harm. You must give me a stay because if you don't give me a stay, you're going to violate my supporters' First Amendment rights to choose who they want as president. No, that's ridiculous. Nothing stops your supporters from voting for you. You can even be elected from a jail cell. So I think the Supreme Court is going to reject this request for a stay. You need five justices to go along with it. And I don't think he's going to get that. And if I'm right, that means this case will be sent back to the D.C. court and it'll be game on for Judge Chutkin and Jack Smith. And that trial for election interference will be heard before the election. Let's talk about some of the arguments that Trump made in his application. At the circuit court, he had argued that former presidents are absolutely immune from prosecution. And we've all heard by now Judge Florence Penn's hypothetical about a president ordering SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a rival. Here's Judge Penn questioning Trump's attorney, John Sauer. I asked you a yes yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is. And he didn't seem to retreat from that argument in the Supreme Court filing. Yeah, they try to nuance it a little bit, but that's a sure loser. I mean, presidents don't have absolute immunity. It's ludicrous to think that you could assassinate your political rival and unless you are impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate, then you get away scot-free, that you can't be charged, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card, then just change the title of president to king, because that's what we would have. But there's a reason why we left the crown many years ago, because we don't have a king, we have a rule of law, and it applies to everyone. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals understood that. They ruled unanimously against Trump, and the Supreme Court's not going to accept that argument either. Now, Could they take the case, grant cert, which only requires four justices, not five, and review the matter and issue a ruling to clarify the law of immunity in certain cases? Sure, I could see that happening, but I don't see them granting a stay here, which would make it a lot harder to try Trump before the election. So that's my best guess. Now, I think, on the other hand, when it comes to the other case of whether Trump can make the ballot in Colorado and other states, I think they're going to rule overwhelmingly for Trump. So I think this is a little bit of a give and take. They're going to rule for Trump that he can stay on the ballot, but against Trump here. That's my prediction. His counsel said the special counsel seeks urgently to force President Trump into a months-long criminal trial at the height of campaign season, effectively sidelining him and preventing him from campaigning against the current president. Trump's attorneys made that same argument to the judge sitting in the New York hush money case. So is his new argument that he shouldn't face any trial before the election? Is he swinging for the fences? Yeah, he wants you to believe he's out there on a bus tour around the country, (laughs) going from town to town, shaking hands, kissing babies. No, he's usually just campaigning from Mar-a-Lago on his true social media site. And so this doesn't stop him from campaigning. He could be in a trial and still do his campaigning, and that won't have an effect. But you can also say that going through a trial and having a verdict actually helps the public because most of the public in polls show that they want to know the result of this case because it'll help them give them more information on whom to vote for. If he's found guilty, that is important to voters. If he's acquitted, that will be important to voters. But if this is stalled till past the election, 
the voters won't get the information they need to make a fully informed decision on perhaps the most consequential election of our lifetimes. So I think that argument doesn't hold water. Also, he's the one who's making this political. Jack Smith and Merrick Garland don't want to bring up politics in this. They want to stay above the political fray. So Jack Smith has not specifically mentioned that we need to get going sooner than later because there's an election coming up. He doesn't want to mention the E word, but Trump is because when it comes to election interference, he is trying to use that to delay his case. He's the one who's using the election to try to get away with this because he doesn't have a better defense than delay, delay, delay. And that's one thing I thought that rang true in Trump's application, that Jack Smith has not specifically said why it's so important that this case go forward so quickly. And in the special counsel's papers urging the Supreme Court to reject Trump's request, he writes that delay in the resolution of these charges threatens to frustrate the public interest in a speedy and fair verdict, a compelling interest in every criminal case and one that has unique national importance here. Yeah, it's like uh, Jack Smith doesn't want to break the code. He and Merrick Garland are so nervous about being seen as political that they don't want to mention the E word. No, 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 don't mention it. Just pretend that it doesn't exist, but you can't. This is why the Supreme Court refused to intervene originally. Remember, Jack Smith went to the Supreme Court originally on this matter to say, please intervene. You can Bigfoot the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. We don't have to go through those middlemen. Why don't you just do it now? But the reason why the Supreme Court said no is because Jack Smith never told them why this is such an emergency. And the real emergency is because there's an election, but Jack Smith doesn't want to acknowledge there's an election coming up. So the Supreme Court said, ah, then there's no emergency. Unless you want to say the magic words, we're not going to give you the relief. So it's interesting now. Now, Jack Smith is telling the Supreme Court, don't get involved. So maybe the best argument Trump has is that Jack Smith went to you, urging you to get involved just a short time ago. Now he doesn't want you to get involved. So that's a contradiction. Yeah, Smith had argued that it was of imperative public importance that the Supreme Court be the one to resolve Trump's immunity claims. I don't know if the justices are going to hold that against him in making this decision. What do you think is the best argument for Smith here? Well, the way to do it is just to say the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals opinion, which took a lot longer than people thought, is very thorough, very strong. Just defer to that. You don't need to go through this. Just defer to what they just did. You don't need to go any further. You don't need to recreate the wheel. And that may work. The Supreme Court is a busy institution, and maybe they don't want to step into this any more than they have to. And they can just deny cert, deny the stay, and let things play out. Trump also asked for a step that could produce additional delay. He requests that the justices grant a stay and hold off any further action until the D.C. Circuit Court decides whether to reconsider the case on bank, meaning in front of the court's full 11-judge bench. But he would have to petition the D.C. Circuit Court for an on-bank hearing. And that's rare, and they probably wouldn't grant it in light of the comprehensive opinion by the three-judge panel. This is an example of Trump wanting to have it both ways. He wants to have both pie and ice cream for dessert. And maybe that's at the buffet of Mar-a-Lago. But in real life, what he's trying to do is to say that I want to go back to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I want them to hear this case en banc, which means the full court, not just a three-judge panel. And at the same time, I want a stay from the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals pulled Trump that you get either or. You can either go back to us and ask for the en banc hearing, but if you do that, there's no stay, then Judge Chuckins can start moving on her case. Or you can go straight to the Supreme Court, and then you can seek a stay there. Trump is saying, no, I want both. 
I want to go back to the full court, and I want to stay. And you know why, June, he wants to go back to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals when he knows that court, which is made up mostly of Democratic-appointed judges, will never rule for him. But the reason why he wants to go back is because it furthers his strategy of delay. He wants every last hearing he can have because every day that goes by without a trial is a victory for Donald Trump. Let's say there are five justices who want to grant a stay. How long do you think it would take from start to finish? I mean, there'll probably be oral arguments. Yeah, if there is a stay, then it makes it a lot harder to try this case before the election. I don't think it's impossible. I think if there's no stay, I think that then this will be tried by the end of spring. At least the start of the trial will happen by the end of spring. If there is a stay, then they'll be lucky to try this in the summertime, and then it gets close to the election. So if the Supreme Court does give the stay and grant cert, then we just don't know how long it will take. The Supreme Court knows this is a matter of great public importance, and it requires urgency. So I don't think they'll go that far, but they may, but they still need five votes. And it's not just that they're going to agree that there's irreparable harm. They'd have to say, the five justices who grant a stay, that there's a likelihood of success on the merits. Really? You think Trump's going to win on his claim of absolute immunity? That five justices, a majority, would say, yeah, we think he's got a good case. That's why I don't think that he wins on the stay. I don't think there's irreparable harm, and I definitely don't think there's a likelihood of success on the merits. So what about if four justices say, let's take this case for review? How would that work? Now, I think that could happen. All it takes is four justices, not a majority, but four justices to grant cert, which is granting certiori, which means we're going to take up the case. But that doesn't mean there's a stay. A stay requires five justices. So they could take up the case and say, we're going to review it you know, to disguise the matter of absolute immunity, and we want to write an opinion about it. But then if there's no stay, then Judge Huckins can start moving the ball forward. And then assuming the court rules on this issue in a timely fashion and rejects Trump's claim of absolute immunity, then the trial can go forward. But as long as there's no stay, then the preliminaries can start going ahead, and then they can set a trial date, and then it's game on. So I think the bigger question for me is not whether they grant cert, it's whether they grant the state. Trump would rather have the state than the cert because he's more concerned about the delay than the ultimate opinion. And I have to say his legal team has been very good at creating delay in all his cases. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dave. That's Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Arenberg. The Supreme Court's decision could come at any time. And we're also waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court on whether states can bar Trump from this year's presidential ballot because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, in its second try, the House impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by a vote of 214 to 213. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. 
House Republicans finally got that one-vote margin necessary to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas on Tuesday. It was a redo of their failed attempt last week. Mayorkas, the first Latino and immigrant to head the department, is only the second cabinet member in U.S. history to be impeached. The last time was 150 years ago. Mayorkas was impeached over his handling of the border. The allegations are baseless and I'm focused on the work. Despite the fact that there is virtually no chance the Senate will have the necessary two-thirds majority to convict Mayorkas, the House went forward with the impeachment, succeeding only with the vote of Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who returned to Washington after being away for cancer treatments. And if they ignore this, then there will be accountability and consequences to that action. So it's on the Senate. Several leading conservative scholars and former Homeland Security secretaries from both Republican and Democratic administrations have dismissed the Mayorkas impeachment as unwarranted or a waste of time, as has House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. This is extraordinary. This is the height of cynicism. Once again, they are embracing chaos and walking away from common sense. Joining me is an expert in impeachment law, Frank Bowman, a professor at the University of Missouri Law School. He testified before the House Homeland Security Committee on impeachment in January. They voted to impeach him on counts of willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law and breach of public trust relating to his handling of immigration and security at the border. Even if proved, does that rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors? Well, with respect to the first claim that he actually willfully violated the law on a matter that was, you know, of real seriousness, I mean, I suppose if it were true, we could have a conversation. But it's not true. It's not even close to true. The best they can say is that he used the discretion conferred on him by law to interpret and apply a series of immigration laws, which are both contradictory and confusing. And he did that in conformity with the directives of the president. There simply is no indication at all that he's violating the law. I mean, the primary thing that they claim he's violating the law on is the claim that the law requires that people who are in the country illegally must be detained and that they cannot be paroled. Well, it's just not true. (laughs) I mean, the law itself has plenty of parole provisions. And in fact, on that particular point, the United States Supreme Court has actually held any one of the series of lawsuits brought against the Department of Secretary Mayorkas by some state Republican attorneys general. The Supreme Court's actually held that detention is not mandatory. So the thing that they are claiming he's violating the law on, the Supreme Court has basically said, no, that's not true. It's really quite remarkable. So we don't even need to get to the question of whether or not, in some hypothetical case, a sufficiently serious and plain violation of law would in itself be impeachable. The answer, I suppose, in theory, in the right case, might be yes, but he hasn't violated the law. What they've got is a series of lawsuits against him in which, you know, in the lower courts, they've won some and they've lost some, and the only two that made it up to the Supreme Court, Republicans have lost. They don't have a final judgment against him suggesting that he's violated the law. It's It's all made up. What about this breach of public trust? That's pretty broad. Well, that is, in a piece I wrote on my blog, I refer to that count as a rag picker's bazaar because it's just got a bunch of stuff in it. For example, they claim he made false statements to the committee. No, he didn't. The claimed false statements that they are alleging he made are cases in which they're basically disagreeing with his use of adjectives and adverbs. 
In other words, they claim that he falsely claimed that apprehended aliens with no legal basis to remain in the United States were being quickly removed. The only thing to disagree with that is the word quickly. They're impeaching him because they don't like his use of the adjective quickly to modify removed. In other cases, he described the border as being secure or no less secure than it was previously. They claim that's a false statement. At most, it's an opinion about the efficiency of his administration and his agency. And we know, first of all, from the very time of the framing, that matters of opinion are not matters appropriate for impeachment. But in any case, if it were an impeachable offense for someone to go into Congress and provide a generous and even optimistic assessment of the performance of their own agency, or for example, a congressman to provide a generous spin on some matter of public policy, everybody would be impeachable. There is not a single instance of an actual false statement that they allege in this article. So that's one thing they claim. In that second article, they claim that there was an obstruction of congressional oversight. Well, for Republicans who defended Donald Trump to claim that anybody else could be impeachable for obstruction of congressional oversight would make a dog laugh. And it's simply not true that Mayorkas obstructed congressional oversight. He you know, has testified something like 27 times before various congressional committees, multiple times before this committee. He's made like 90 witnesses available to Congress and to question about the operations of the department, provided tens of thousands of pages of documents. And, you know, at the very end, when the committee wanted to examine him, have him testify one more time, he responded by saying, well, on the particular day you've asked me to come, I'm actually meeting with Mexican officials to talk about border issues. Can we reschedule it? And they refused and went ahead and impeached him for obstruction. I mean, it's a joke. There's absolutely nothing in either of these articles, and I think that the fact that that is so is indicated by the fact that they could not find a single legal expert of any kind, not a legal historian, you know, not a constitutional scholar, not a judge, not a lawyer, not a single person could they find to come down to Congress and say, yes, as a constitutional matter, what you're alleging is impeachable, because it's not there. Also, just hours before the vote, the U.S. Border Patrol released new data showing that the number of migrants illegally crossing the southern border with Mexico plummeted by 50 percent in January compared with December. Who knows why, but does that mitigate against then impeaching him? Well, performance numbers shouldn't be a matter of impeachability, right? I mean, that's the key here. Impeachment is a constitutional mechanism that is reserved for the most serious kinds of offenses. That's why you can only be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It is a grave constitutional tool for the most serious of matters. It is not something that you trot out simply because you disagree with administration policy or you find the performance of a particular cabinet officer to be below your standards. I mean, there's a reason that Mayorkas is only the second cabinet officer ever to be impeached. It's because for 235 years, everybody understood that's the case, that you don't impeach people for policy differences. If you did, why you'd be impeaching people left, right, and sideways. The only cabinet officer who's ever been impeached was a guy who flagrantly committed bribery. The Republicans are stepping into dangerous new ground here where they're simply saying, well, anytime we don't like something the administration is doing, we can simply impeach the person who happens to be the head of the department who's doing most of it. So I don't think that it matters at all what the particular numbers are for impeachment purposes. However, that does take us into the larger picture here, which is even if your theory is I can impeach an officer because I'm really, really upset 
about the conduct of a particular policy area by the administration. The real thing you should be doing, actually, is you should be passing legislation to address the problem that you're so upset about. But of course, as we know, within the last you know 10 days or so, you know, a bipartisan group of senators negotiated a real piece of legislation that would have made very significant changes to immigration enforcement in this country. And then the very same people who want to impeach Mayorkas basically squashed it at the behest of Donald Trump because they don't want to solve the problem. They want to run on it. And that's all this is. The House has appointed 11 Republicans to serve as impeachment managers. So then this goes over to the Senate. Does the Senate have to hold a trial? An interesting question constitutionally. It's one we talked about in the first Trump case. I don't know the answer. Nobody really knows the answer. But certainly it appears that the Senate has concluded, that the majority leader has concluded that something has to happen, that the Senate has to address it, because I gather they're going to commence something on like the 26th. Well, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the appointed House Republican impeachment managers will present the articles to the Senate when senators return to Washington at the end of the month. And then the Senate President pro tem, Patty Murray, will preside over a trial. But I'm wondering if there's any way around that. There is a mechanism by which one could avoid holding this whole trial. Commonly, for the last several decades at least, for lesser officers, people other than presidents, they've created a trial committee that will simply hold hearings, present a report to the full Senate, and the full Senate votes. I don't even think that will happen here. My best guess is that some sort of trial will be convened and that the presiding officer will probably entertain a motion to dismiss the case up front without the presentation of evidence, and that the vote will be taken, and my guess the whole thing will be dismissed without any evidence being presented. I don't know that. I have no inside information on that point. But it's something like that, you may remember, actually was attempted in I think, the second Trump case, where there was a motion to dismiss based on the alleged lack of jurisdiction, and that motion failed, and they went forward with something in the nature of trial. I think in this case, the motion will pass very probably, and that will be the end of it. Now, Mayorkas is not the only Biden administration official that House Republicans want to impeach. They're, of course, looking into impeaching President Biden. They filed legislation to impeach a list including Vice President Kamala Harris, Attorney General Merrick Garland, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. What is wrong with this picture? Well, I mean, one has to avoid overreacting a little bit in the sense that individual outlying members of the House of both parties have over time sometimes introduced resolutions to try to impeach this person or that person because they were ticked off. What's different here, obviously, is that what we have here is not simply the actions of one or two eccentrics. What we have here is a concerted effort by House Republicans to impeach people from the president on down without any grounds. And that is very, very bad. It terribly devalues the institution of impeachment itself, which is supposed to be reserved for the most serious instances of very grave official misconduct. If you are taking seriously completely non-serious allegations on a regular basis, then when something really serious comes along, it's too easy to dismiss it. Well, we'll see how the Senate handles this case next month. Thanks so much for the conversation, Frank. That's Professor Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri Law School. 
And in news related to the effort in the House to impeach President Joe Biden, Special Counsel David Weiss, who is investigating Hunter Biden, has charged an FBI informant with fabricating a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving Biden, his son Hunter, and Ukrainian energy company Burisma, a claim that's central to the Republican impeachment inquiry. The special counsel charged Alexander Smirnov with providing the FBI false derogatory information, including claims that Burisma executives paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each. The special counsel said that Smirnov's stories fell apart and that he, quote, transformed his routine and unextraordinary business contacts with Burisma into bribery allegations against Biden, who was then the presumptive presidential nominee of the Democratic Party. House Republicans say they're going forward with the impeachment inquiry. This is Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grosso. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.